So, uh, as a classical pianist, I find jazz a very fascinating world. Yeah, sure. It's something I've not had not had a lot of formal education in, but it's always something a sound world that I was very very drawn to, and the it, the expressive ability of jazz. Yeah. Um, so Grover Sales, a jazz historian, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Grover Sales. He's a I think he, he passed away maybe a couple of years ago. He wrote a book called um, Jazz, America's Classical Music. Right. And that's from his 1984 book. That's right. his title. Um, what do you think of this statement? Do you think there's some, some, some truth to this statement? Is it America's classical music? That's a really, I mean, <laughs> I think it's really interesting because I think you could, you could really get into a rabbit hole about any music the minute you start defining it via other musics. Um, I'm I'm very wary of not only cultural appropriation and uh, tropes within certain styles that are adopted um, because of legacy reasons, but also um, that um, I think music, and I know this is going to sound a really kind of soppy thing to say, but music means different things to different people. So one person's classical is another person's, uh, I don't know, um, pots and pans do you know what i mean so i, th I think you have to be very careful so so i i, I suppose what the what the in intimation there is that there's a, the the canon of jazz is a similar i don't even know if that's true though i'm, I'm talking myself out of this as i'm talking but the canon of jazz in america uh is their original music that in the same way in which the canon of western classical although there's again it's a very I mean, as you, as you know, <laughs> it's, a, it's a very strange thing to say because uh, there are so many branches to each of these things. Um, I once, my, well, I once, my, my one, of, one of the most amazing people ever taught me was a chap called Pete Churchill, who's, uh, who's this, uh, he's a genius. Um, he's a, a jazz educator and a fantastic pianist and singer and writer and arranger, um, you know, teaches at the Academy of Music. He taught me at the Guildhall school of music and um he had this saying which really stuck with me which is like jazz is an attitude and i just thought this is a really really lovely way of thinking about it i mean you know it's obviously not as easy as that but um the, it's a very interesting thing in the same way to say classical music is mozart you know or classical music is i don't know if you if you think a modern classical musician is debussy you're already a century out <laughs> so it's you know it's very these kind of I, I find these kind of analogies uh, troubling at best. Hmm. Uh, so, so I'm sure that answers your question. <laughs> no, I, it, it's sort of given me a clearer position. Jazz is an attitude. So, is jazz something? If if jazz means that, does that mean you could develop that attitude, and not necessarily you're born with it? <clears throat> oh, I, I mean that's a, again that's a, a very different conversation. Which which again I'd happily have about the nature nurture thing. I'm. I'm um, can you learn conventions and tropes? Yes, of course you can. But the one thing in any music, and I think this is this is often missed in in a number of in ways in which we teach music, actually, which I do here at this this university, is just the the amount of information you get from listening to stuff and enjoying it, rather than being told this is a skill you need to learn to get better at. Um, you know, obviously instruction is very important. <coughs> um, the in modeling and um repeating and, and you know wrote almost which is an old-fashioned thing but very important in music pedagogy is also important but actually the, the being inspired by listening to things i i learnt jazz inverted commas by listening to it i i only really found out how it worked quite late on in my life as a as a learner you know i was well i didn't i, I got to master's level before i actually got taught jazz properly so that was, you know, the rest of it was I learned from working stuff out, from listening to it. And, and actually something that was very, very important, um, it still is, obviously, but I think even more so before the age of the internet, whereas nowadays you can, if you want something, you access it fairly quickly. Um, I'm old enough to remember that if I wanted to listen to jazz, I'd have to go to a gig. And that would lead sometimes to me playing at gigs when I was young and kind of, naive i'm still naive but i'm not young anymore but the um you know you'd, you'd sit in you call it sitting in where you'd come and sit in a, in a band um 
and you probably have to learn on the bandstand and uh and that's a, it was a great experience um because it gave you it gave you the the it made it made you listen the key thing it made you do was listen and you had to really understand what was going on around you or you had to react to it even if you couldn't understand it, you had to react to it so uh, the jazz as an attitude thing is a really interesting um uh, the reason why i like that comment is because it suggests that as a musician what you're bringing is yourself so so your experiences lived through jazz are the attitude that you bring to it rather than can you do this this and this that makes you a jazz musician mm. and i think it's, I, it's i'd argue it's the same across all genres i think you can learn certain types of instruction that you can execute perfectly but then people will say where's the soul and what they mean by where's the soul is what do you bring to the music and that's your attitude right so classical is an attitude pop is an attitude punk is definitely an attitude right so these are you know you think about music across the thing and it, that's why that's why it resonated so much with me I'm, I'm sure there'll be people shouting at this podcast now going you're completely wrong but <laughs> yeah but it just it makes it more human for me and that's music right that's a very powerful statement yeah i think that's one thing i remember today i'll mm. try to keep that in mind um so you were self you were teaching yourself jazz up until was it masters you said and then you had yeah effectively yeah right and because sometimes when you're sort of self-guided in this sort of world and and jazz is a very complicated world yeah um that's no no doubt there so from that transition from being self-taught and then going to have formal lessons, yeah, were there any sort of bad habits that you picked up during your self-teaching that was that was, that were corrected when you had formal lessons? I mean, people might argue that I still have those <laughs> bad habits right now, <laughs> you know, 20, 30 years later. I mean, I, you know, to, to be fair, I did have some some people help massively help me. You know, it wasn't that I was completely blind to what was going on. I had um, I, I attended really poorly my attendance was terrible uh, an amazing um jazz course in chichester which was just it's, it's kind of notorious in the uk for being one of the one of the best kind of it was like a thing you did before uni um and i i was i meant to go there a lot but i didn't go there that much but there were some incredible tutors on that course including this this great south african bass player called um rob milner who was you know the, the, and i had other people help me and and i i did um a lot of work with youth groups and stuff and uh and the nice thing about jazz is what you get it's almost like a mentor system so i didn't have a formal education but i had some of the best jazz musicians touring or whatever you know they'd sit in and they'd say right have you tried doing this do you know about this so you'd have a kind of piecemeal approach but really good one mm. and they'd send you off to listen to stuff they'd sit with you they'd work stuff out i had you know some of the Genuinely, I was really blessed to have people like um, it's an amazing pianist called Julian Joseph, who, who was really helpful and influential, and his brother James, both, you know, very, very generous. And it's you'll find this about musicians in general. I always think the better the musicians are, the more generous they are. Mm. So, um, because everyone, everyone who's who's a musician wants everyone else to be a musician. You know, I'm apologies to everyone out there, but I don't want you to become an accountant or a banker. <laughs> I want you to become a musician because they, we have a great life. You know. Um, so, obviously, we need the bankers and the accountants because otherwise we can't eat. Yeah. <laughs> so, but um, you you know it's that that kind of the, the almost the arrogance of a musician is like it's the best thing you do ever, and that's why we want you to do it. And the better the musician, the better the helper is always. Um, so when I got to the level where I studied the course, there's a funny little anecdote. I don't know if I'm rambling here, but no, no, no. Uh, the I started so I my first degree uh, my undergraduate degree was at Sussex University in Brighton um and I did the contemporary music course there which was a, which was absolutely incredible three years of mind-blowing amazing stuff especially for composition um but I went there because it said contemporary music and I thought I'd be studying jazz and I spent three years studying contemporary classical music, oh, no. which I had no idea about. <laughs> so it was kind of typical, you know, 18-year-old, oh, yeah, that looks cool. It's in Brighton. That's a great city. <laughs> I'll go there. And then the first thing I was asked to do was like, can you do a pastiche of Stravinsky? And I'm like, who's this Stravinsky dude? <laughs> Man, what does he play? Does he play sax? And I'm like reading about it and go, oh, my God, I'm in the deep end. But it was amazing, like truly amazing. You know, I learned, I learned a lot of the contemporary classical repertoire, um, and I really, really enjoyed the, the concepts behind it, which actually were very, very similar to jazz. And obviously, 
as you know as you discover Stravinsky was into his jazz right and uh, you know there's loads of, I mean like I'd I love there's loads of American um, musicians uh, composers who <clears throat> definitely have massively influenced some of my favorite jazz composers which I you know I suppose we'll talk about a bit later on um, Copeland is an obvious example uh, um yeah, and, and up to the modern day. I mean, the modern day kind of, there's loads of great, cool people writing. Like one of the guys I was obsessed with for a bit was Mark, um, uh, Mark Anthony Turnage, who's a uh, ph- phenomenal um, so, so composer and very jazz influenced. So lots of stuff going on there, right? Um, so then after that, after that degree, I basically got to the end of that degree and decided, yes, I actually do want to do this properly. So I started practicing and I got, to, got luckily accepted into the Guildhall. Um, which was a really great experience, but it was the first time I'd actually sat down with any kind of pedagogy. Um, and <clears throat> I mean, again, <clears throat> I'm acutely aware of this because of being in the position I'm in here now at the University of Southampton. Pedagogy in popular music is young. So whereas with classical music, pedagogy has probably existed for you know a good couple of hundred years, the very nature of the musics that, that you study within what are considered to be popular musics or I mean, it's a tenuous what you call them, but oral musics um, and how they're expressed um, are young. So initially, I mean, this is a, again, I think some will get into more depth a bit later on, but initially the framing of the pedagogy behind jazz was from a classical perspective because that's the only framework there was. And also it's the only framework that institutions would understand to allow to be delivered. So I was lucky enough to be f- a bit down the line and within this, but I still must have been, I think I, I understand from a friend of mine that they first started teaching jazz properly, inverted commas, uh, in the late 80s in the conservatoires. So I took my course year millennium, so it must have been 1999, 2000, I think it was, round about then. So it would only have been about 10, 15 years old in terms of a, and I know it's changed considerably since then. Uh, but it was interesting having that formalized structure. And the first thing I realized immediately getting there after being like, you know, you're the man where when you're at uni, you're like, oh, man, man can play jazz. He's cool. Right? <clears throat> and then I realized that I was rubbish. I was just like the worst. And, and that whole music college experience that most people have when they go to music college, right? It's like, oh, no, <laughs> really? <laughs> I, it was it was frightening actually because I was in the I was I was without a doubt I was the worst person in the class. I, I, you know, I'm not just saying that to, to to sound like humble. I really was awful compared to some of them. I, I had um had a really good friend of mine called Brian Postlethwaite who was um, a pianist who he'd gone to York and I'd gone to Sussex, but he was like miles ahead of me on the piano. Um, even though he'd not done a jazz degree before, he just same as me, he'd done a classical sort of degree. Um, and there were other guys who just there was, this, there was this chap who I've never really heard of again. It was a, this incredible. So this is on master's course. This incredible young guitarist who was eighteen on a master's course called Tony Ormisher, guitarist. And he was the one that he played, and everyone in the entire room just looked around and went, "Oh my god, okay, that's the standard." So that was really interesting, and it was really really hard work, and I enjoyed it thoroughly. And I still, I studied properly for that course. I, I'm I'm ashamed to say. It was only at that point in my life I understood what studying was. And I still have all my notes, and I still look at them regularly. Because um, the people who taught me there were inspirational, absolutely inspirational. Changed my life, that course. Um, but yeah, it was... I'm sure like with most things in life, the minute you the minute you really understand what you're doing, it opens many more doors. Mm. I mean, you, you know, you can be enthused about stuff. And I, I am not one of these people who thinks that... Uh, that knowing or being able to study stuff in depth takes away the magic. I actually think the other way around. I think it's it facilitates more. Mm-hmm. Um, Gives you more control. Yeah, it just it just opens more more opportunities. You know, I mean, I'm fairly I'm fairly chilled. I'm a chill person, as they say, and um, so I'm not really that fussed about control. I never have been. But what I what I do like is I like exploring. I think that's and I think that's another. A thing that people associate with jazz musicians, but wrongly don't associate with all musicians. All musicians love exploring. Mm. Why would you do music otherwise? Mm. There are safer jobs to do, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, the 
it's interesting. Yeah. Sorry. I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned exploring. Mm. Um, just touching back on what you said about jazz pedagogy compared to classical pedagogy. Mm. Classical pedagogy, yeah, you're right. There's hundreds of years of precedent and things to look back on and tradition that people still follow and um, maybe sometimes to their own expense, but there are other teachers who are very, very, how do you say, innovative in their mm. teaching techniques. Mm. Because jazz, in comparison, hasn't been around that long and pedagogy thus hasn't been around that long either. Yeah. Do you reckon there's more justification for jazz teachers to be more experimentative, experimentative in their teaching style and their approach? Oh, the, <laughs> there's so much in that question. It's a great question. And it's one that, um, I mean, it's, it's one of these kind of live issues in, a, in jazz education. But actually, contemporary popular music education as well. I, um, uh, interestingly, at the moment, there's a lot of discussion around other musics because of the way in which jazz has had. To, uh, I don't know why. I think I think it might be because jazz be kind of was formative before or formed before other popular musics that that why jazz is kind of slightly ahead in the pedagogy game. So. Is there a better scope to experiment? Um, there should be, is the answer to that. Um, and I, 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 but I still think, <coughs> I still think that experimentation should form a part of all creativity. Um, I don't necessarily see that as a genre thing. Mm. However, I understand the, the what you're getting at with improvisation. Obviously, has key is, is the key ingredient is is being able to experiment and to allow. I, it, I mean, putting it kind of simply, experimentation generally is allowing yourself to fail. Now, um, I, I, I'm not unknown to talk about this a lot, especially when it comes to the education system in this country, in the fact that students aren't allowed to fail. Mm. There's, there's a real pressure on students to get the outcome right rather than understand the process. Now, uh, as a creative musician... And as a jazzer, nothing changes in the music unless you're allowed to make mistakes. Now, that should be the same within teaching. Um, however, because there's an obsession with league tables, with marks, with things like that, this goes into jazz. So you'll find that sometimes, and I'm not, I'm, I think these are on, often unfairly leveled, um, these accusations are unfairly leveled, at, especially at conservatoires, actually. I, I'm... I, I, it wasn't my experience, and I know I have good friends who teach at conservatoires. It's it's not what they do, but often the accusations leveled is that all conservatoire musicians sound the same. You've probably heard this about pianists, right? They all sound the same. It's yeah. not true. They, yes, they are taught a curriculum. Yes, they are given information year on year that's the same as the other year, but it's no different to being taught the same formulas for algebra or calculus if you're doing maths. And yet you get different types of mathematicians, right? Um, you have to know what parts of the body you're going to cut open if you're going to be a surgeon. You don't just guess and experiment, right? So I, I feel like there's a fundamental amount of information that you do need to know as a musician and it can be genre-specific. Where I worry is that that's taken as the rigour and that's the, that, that's the only point at which you make a connection with it. Mm. So, so you should be allowing your... So this is a deep conversation about pedagogy. You should be allowing students to take that information away and do what they want with it. And not necessarily, I mean, there will be occasions where there are inverted commas right or wrong way, but the knowledge itself is the important part to, to say. And one of uh, my students here will, will have heard me say this over and over again. I feel the resp my responsibility is to give them as much of the best knowledge I can possibly give them, and it's up to them if they screw it up. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. their choice, right? Because yeah. if yeah. they want to screw it up, then great. That's you know, I don't, I don't. Sorry, screw it up's a totally wrong <laughs> euphemism. But they want to take it somewhere else. If they want to, if they want to, uh, if they want to disregard it, you know, and God knows, I, I can be wrong. You know, I found that out. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, maybe. But um, occasionally, I'm wrong about things. But um, you know, the. I, th I think the experimental thing, yes, I, I, fundamentally it should be form part of everything. Is it? I'm not always sure it is, and I don't think that's the fault of the people doing the education. I, f I feel that's the fault of the pressure of the system around them. 
So um, I'm very, very defensive of music teachers. I think the vast majority of them are utterly amazing. They work their um, backsides off to do all sorts of things, especially extracurricular stuff. They're under immense pressure, and yet the the one thing that drives the vast majority of people to do anything creative is not allowed to flourish because people above them just want to see the black and white results at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I mean, this again, I don't know if this has become a regular theme, but I'm, I assure you if you ever talk to other, anyone else in the teaching sector, they'll say the same thing. Mm-hmm. And by the way, we're all teachers. And this is going to sound another soppy statement, but anyone who's a musician who has younger members of musicians in the band you know, if I'm if I'm ever running a an ensemble and I'm in front of the ensemble, I'm still teaching them stuff. And if they want to engage with what I'm saying, they can do. And if they not, it's my decision whether or not to keep them. But generally, I have to listen to what they do, right? That's experimenting as well. So there's so many nuances to this, right? Mm, exactly. You know, it goes across everything. And um, yeah, creativity is good. Hashtag something or other. <laughs> it, it goes back to let's say contemporary cd recording approaches everything sounds too polished and sounds too uniform and everything you can't really tell or distinguish the difference between this pianist and this pianist mm. so then that the 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 framework of interpretation has sort of shrunk like like shrank a bit do you, i mean so the question i have for you is do you yeah. think that's to do with the repertoire choice i I don't think so. No, I don't think so. Because if you compare, let's say, um, let's let's take, for example, Rachmaninoff's famous recording of his concerto. Yeah. He played he played and recorded two of them, I think, as far as I know, or three. Um, and if you compare several Rach concertos in, let's say, the late 20th century, early 21st, it's very hard to distinguish who's who. Right. It's very hard. That's maybe maybe there are a few pianists you can probably tell. Maybe Sviatoslav Richter, the famous Soviet yeah. pianist. You could probably tell him from maybe um, maybe Michelangelo, Michelangelo or. Um, but I'm not sure what the reason is for this 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 narrowing of interpretation and sort of creativity and individuality. Everyone seems to want to pummel and hammer people into this mold of perfection. Every note has to be perfect. Every crescendo has to be perfect. Every staccato has to be done this way. Mm. And it doesn't excite me, actually, anymore. And I prefer people who take risks and bring their attitude, to bring a term to use earlier, to to their playing and to make it exciting. And, you know, I want to pay to see you, not pay to see like you play someone else. I I don't want to see that. Absolutely agree. This might get me a bit of hate, but I don't like people like Yu Zhuang or, or Kat or um, yeah. Just, I mean, she's a great player, but yeah. um, I don't see much sort of soul and experience in her playing. So, so I, th- I mean, my again, I have, I have m- many feelings about this because I think there is, there is something that isn't a million miles away within the jazz world. Um, and I know some people are, they get very scared of putting in a bad performance on a CD or recording um, and obviously you know we don't talk about it but there is technology now to fix that and it is used across all musics um, I know it's used across all musics it's not just to fix a, a pop style vocal mm. it's, it's you can you can do it to fix anything now you can put stuff in tune in the right time so I do I do get this um, issue I think I think you raise a really good point about um, character and and soul, or however we want to describe this um, individual sound. What you what what you bring to it, and again, I, I you know I don't mean to kind of sound like some sort of I don't know, evangelist here, but it's it's something that I really try to drill into the students we have here at this university, um, because again, it was drilled into me. Is that it's what you bring to the music that's more important than you know than just playing the music i i think at the level you get certain level you get to which we we call professional um uh or certainly very you know working musician standard you should be able to play the notes and the rhythms in the right place yeah i mean it's just 
you know, if, you, if you're gonna if you're gonna make an omelet, you start with an egg, right? <laughs> if you turn up without the egg, you're in trouble. <laughs> but there's lots of different ways of making an omelet, mm. you know. Mm. And um, I, I do feel like with with the, I mean, it kind of really kind of simple thing for me. Oh, you're gonna get you're gonna get everything now. Anyone listening to this is gonna be like it's it's, it's definitely Dan on this podcast. But there's there's really simple things. The first one is, um, I think personally, time and tone are really really important. It's the only thing that describes the character of music, the sound. So the sound in the in the air it's the first thing you recognise is the tone of someone and where they place the music. Mm-hmm. And then if you know they can play like. And those semi hemi demi flemmy quavers at 210 BPM, good for them, right? But the only thing, the character, the way in which they deliver something and where they deliver it in space makes such a big difference, right? So that's the first thing. The second thing, and, and you shouldn't underestimate this, is their love of what they're actually playing. Are they playing the music because they enjoy it or because they think they should be playing it? And you can always tell. It's like, <laughs> This is why I asked the question about repertoire to you, because, I, you know... I find people who try to impress other people through music very boring. I totally get that some people love playing fast and some people love playing high and some people love playing loud and that's because that's the kind of person they are, you know. Maybe they're that kind of person who lives their life fast or just drinks a lot of coffee or, you know, right? But there's there's some people who that that's the, they resonates with them. It's like, oh, I need to play everything really, really quickly, you know. I, I will only play... Rachmaninoff, <laughs> because of, because it's got so many notes, right? I'll only play bebop at like two hundred and ten. I'll only play Guthrie Govan on the guitar because there's loads of wiggling on the, and, you know. But these those people love that music, right? Um, but I do think the individualization of what you bring to it is really important. And um, what I have learnt is that, and this is this took me years, by the way. I'm not. I don't want to go into full patronising mode, but what I have learnt is people like Yuja Wang um, and Lang Lang, for instance, and probably Yo-Yo Ma and, and, and on the jazz side, uh, you know, the, the less kind of, the more mainstream people, you know, the kind of people who cross over, so to speak. Um, I struggle to get past Kenny G in terms of, you know, but people like that, they truly believe in what they're doing. They really do. I mean, it's, you know, it's not my cup of tea, generally. Um, but, I suspect they do the same thing over and over again because that's what they want to do. And they'll change when they want to change. Um, you can't get to that level without doing that. I mean, there'll be some input, obviously, but... Um, the, I mean, the, the thing I always think about the CDs, which I think is a really interesting thing, is if you go and see that person live, do they sound like the CD? Mm. Um, and that's when you can really tell as to what purpose the CD or a recording or was it, listen to us using CD like it's like it's 2012, um, you know, streaming. But mm. and um, if you if you go and hear that person speak their truth live, and if it's the same as the recording, then I'm like, you know, fair enough. That's the sound you were going for. It, it might not resonate with you, but you can understand that was their truth. If you go and hear them live and it's a completely different experience. And I remember having this conversation with someone relatively well-known in the jazz world. Um, they were they were touring over here in the UK from somewhere else. They came over. I'm not going to say who. And I heard that I didn't really get their music particularly um, because I, all I had was recordings. But, we, you know, I got the chance to chat and... Uh, and I got got a chance to, to see them play, and they were unbelievable live, like ridiculous. And then I chatted afterwards, and the thing was is that they saw it as two different processes. Like one was a process of making almost like a calling card, which was the the demo, and the other thing was I can just let loose now and play live. Mm. And it's a really strange dynamic, I think, but that's like <coughs> for them it made total sense. Sorry, that's just a cough. I'm, that's okay. I realise we're in the middle of a pandemic. Here, so, <laughs> so yeah, it's not uh, not anything more substantial. I've had both my jabs. Good. Yeah, that's that's lost you some more listeners as well. Um, yeah. So yeah, you're you're right. It's very interesting that the the whole you know being spontaneous. You know. Yeah. Do you think that's rare among contemporary artists to be better live than their CD recordings? I honestly don't know. It's a really good question. Um, 
it's probably something we su- suggest to somebody who wants to do a PhD at yeah. a place like this. But um, I I would suspect that if there was a trend towards it, it's worrying. Uh, I don't know if it's rare. I think most. I mean, I can only speak from experience of myself and those people I know. Um, you want to present your recorded music in the same way you'd present a live version. I would suggest. And if not, you'll have a reason why the what you're presenting on recorded is as it is. I don't think I don't know many people who do recorded stuff to, to sound clever. Mm. You know, there's always a reason behind it. You know, if they're if they're making music to sound complex, it's because they wanted it to sound complex. But they might not be able to do the same thing live, just because of circumstance or tiredness or whatever. Um, but they might want it to just prove a point. You know, spend you know, 10 weeks shedding a couple of tunes and get them right on the recording. Mm-hmm. But when you have to go out and do a an hour and a half, two hour concert, you can't do the same thing, right? Because yeah, you've got to, yeah. you know. So yeah, I, I do think it's, I, I think this is a really interesting conversation. I think, I mean, one of the, one of the kind of elephants in the rooms, for, for especially for jazz and classical, mm-hmm. is the whole idea of um, how we listen to music has changed um, with streaming. Um, there's a discipline to listening to re- music, um, and I think that discipline is is being engaged with differently than how it used to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, my experience of listening to music was is was and is very different to the, to the experience that students, not necessarily music students, but students in general have. So, um, you know, this idea that you can have a thousand different short tunes and be able to actually concentrate on any of them. It's a crazy idea, I think, but that's just me. You know, I sound, and now I'm sounding really old. I, I, I will listen to something and try and understand it, and that might take me several tens of listens, and it might be a long piece, and it might be a short piece, but there'll be a reason why I listen. I listen very differently. I don't know. I don't know. I always have this conversation with musicians and wonder if it's the same thing. I can't go into restaurants and eat with music on in the background because oh, really? I find myself not listening to what other people are saying <laughs> and trying to work out what's going on in the music <laughs> and uh, you know it's just like it's, I can't do background music because you know my, my ears are like up all the time going what the hell's going on here or, or, or worse still it's like why did they miss that bit or you know whatever I remember distinctly being in this Thai restaurant and they had these uh, crazy versions of like Britney Spears and stuff but with it's kind of pseudo Thai music going on at the same time. It was just the weirdest combination. And I was meant to be talking to somebody about some work thing. And I just didn't understand. It was just like doing my head in. Why would you do that chord change there when it was the <laughs> wrong one? And, you know, it's just, oh, I remember thinking like, this is, I must be so rude because <laughs> kind of grunting replies at this other person worrying about like, <laughs> yeah. you know that's the problem I think it's one of the, our inflictions as musicians is we, we over listen mm. but that's also one of the best things about being a musician exactly because there is no over listening right exactly <laughs> I, funny you said that actually. Yeah. I was actually in a in a in a Chinese restaurant with my parents having lunch and they were playing very old music that I used to listen to in the car my mum used to have right. the CD on, on repeat for years Yeah, she wouldn't change it Yeah, um, and there were these songs I that I listened to when I was a child and then when I've heard the first few harmonic progressions, it just ignited something in me. It was just this nostalgic flow all of a sudden. Just Amazing. Just those first, first few chords. And I remember my parents were talking about something. I, just, I didn't know what they said for the whole conversation. Yeah. Because it brought back so many memories and uh, just being so intrigued by what's going on in the background. Did you find you listened to it differently? Now, you, now you've, inverted commas, trained. Yeah, I, I def- yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Um I think when you're a kid, you you listen to music. Well, I think people still do now, but they also do it analytically. But when you're a kid, you listen to music because you feel it's good. Yeah, you don't really. There's your your rational mind is not turned on. You just you feel it, or maybe that's just the creatives in us and the the romantics in us that just become attracted to music. But yeah, when I think when you're a child, you just you feel more than you think. Yeah, and I yeah. think that's quite maybe that's right in child, child psychology maybe you just you you become attracted I th- and i think now as a as a growing up and having done music college and talked to many professional musicians i think i i i pay more attention to harmony now 
I've not done it before. So, oh, that's a nice chord progression. Yeah, I like that. That feels yeah, good. Yeah. I wonder how they did that. Yeah, um, right. But you work it out. You sat there working. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. it's quite nice. Maybe I sit there thinking that that's really that's a really emotionally impactful chord progression. There, I like that. But I never did that as a kid. Yeah, um, uh, I've got a really good friend of mine called uh, Andy Fisher, and one of the most irritating things him and I do at the pub is we talk about chords, <laughs> and it's quite often, <laughs> quite often because uh, because something will happen or we'll hear something and we'll be like, "Man, you hear how these eleven to that?" And he'd be like, "Yeah, what about if we did?" And we'd be like, "Yeah, but what if this happened?" Like, oh yeah, this is great. <laughs> and literally, we'd be in the middle of a conversation with a whole group of people, and they'd be kind of chatting away, and we'd be shouting chords at each other. Um, and I, I apologise to all my other friends if you've been there now, because I've just said this out loud and realised how horrible that must be. But yeah, he, he's—I mean, he's another genius guy. He's just amazing. And um, yeah, but it's it's really interesting, isn't it? Because you you really overanalyze. I suppose that's part of the job, you know. It's when you the job, but yeah. Ah, but yeah, um, yeah moving swiftly onto harmony, actually. Yeah, um, I'm glad you mentioned chords. Nice <laughs> progression there. Um, what's uh, what's jazz harmony to you? Is it beautiful? Is it a very beautiful thing to you? Wow, there's a question. Um, well, harmony is harmony, um, and I, again, I don't want to be too blasé about this there are jazz conventions um i mean essentially i I always think jazz harmony could be taught in lots of different ways and most of which would not have the name jazz in it uh so the kind of stuff that you associate with standards and things like that is essentially diatonic harmony Mm -hmm. but kind of we're talking harmony rather than improvising here but um you know, it's, diatonic, it's quite often it's advanced diatonic harmony because you're talking about things that don't necessarily get covered um, and you're probably talking about chord progressions. So if you were to describe, you know, what we call jazz standards from the Western songbook, anything from kind of the 40s and 50s and, you know, all the famous tunes like Autumn Leaves, uh, even the Disney stuff like Bear and Sessies, they're, they're essentially pop songs, but they're diatonic pop songs uh, with nice chord changes. So you could be, you know, it's advanced diatonic and advanced diatonic chord structures with uh yeah movements and and once you understand that that's effectively you have lots and lots of music nailed you know um for anything from jazz to some neoclassical stuff to certainly lots of pop music uh film music video game music all sorts of things um where jazz becomes interesting is when well, no, that's not true. It is interesting now. I think it's very interesting. Sorry. Where, where it becomes slightly more... Um, it branches out. It becomes slightly more muddy in that. It's that, that jazz borrows from other things, which I really like. About it. It's like a magpie music. So it will find stuff that it's interested in, like, say, for instance, modal music, which modal music isn't a new thing. Modal music was actually there before Bach decided to tune his piano. And um, oh, it wasn't the piano, was it? But, um, but it was, you know, the the whole idea of modes were, were, you know, Gregorian monks and things like, you know. So, but jazz liked that idea. Jazz liked the idea of how that works, like the idea of how it got used in some contemporary classical stuff, like the idea of it just being a mode, like the idea that um, other cultures use things like that. So they they kind of swallowed it up and turned it into what their version of it was. Um, you, you know, you move on and, and um, people like Miles Davis in the 70s is listening to Jimi Hendrix. He's listening to, to um, you know, rock bands. Uh, famously, he was at the Isle of Wight Festival. Um, and um, he then takes that sound and brings it into his music, which changes that. You get Herbie Hancock, who who's another, you know, seminal jazz musician who's, listening to people like Sly and the Family Stone, he's listening to funk bands, he's listening to Stevie Wonder, and he takes stuff in and makes it into it. And it happens all through. And this is, and it becomes this kind of melting pot of ideas. Like it's one of the things that I personally love the most about the music is that anything goes. Um, you can really... Um, you can really find your own voice harmonically. Um, and then... And then whether or not you want to follow the rules is very much what we talked about earlier. You can present the rules and you can assess the rules. There's no doubt you can assess the rules. Um, I do at this university. I assess the rules in, in jazz harmony. However, I'm more than happy when people perform that if they want to go around the rules, they can do. Um, 
Uh, which brings you very, you know, brings you really nicely to the present day and people like Jacob Collier and guys like that. Who Jacob's really, really interesting because I know he sounds really fresh and cool, but essentially the harmony he's using was nailed in 1960. And, um, and it, it, you know, he, he, the way he presents it is amazing. Um, there's this thing about negative harmony, which yeah. I, if you heard all about this, negative harmony is a concept that came out of contemporary classical music in about nine, well, it was, 1901, 1902 was there's a famous paper about it, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, but because of the way in which it's presented on YouTube, it then becomes a thing again, which then gets moulded in. And actually, to be honest, I mean, I happily have this chat with uh, other harmony people, but it's basically diminished harmony, um, and we can we can talk about that till the cows come home. But see, I've turned into that guy in the pub again. <laughs> but um, I think, I mean, the, the one thing I do think about jazz harmony that's really wonderful is that you can you can use you can tame it. Uh, and you can, it's very, very malleable. Hmm. The, you know, and then you can create an identity and it's really lovely. And the one key thing I always think about jazz musicians is that the writing that they do as performers makes a big difference to their performing. So if there is one, it's not a big difference, but if, if there's one, because <laughs> it's really interesting, I've just realized what I'm about to say is only true of the present day. If there's one thing that divides jazz and classical musicians, it's that the jazz performers generally perform their own music. However, as I just thought in my head, this was always the case for people like Beethoven and Mozart. So so it's kind of come full circle, right? So, you know, and and actually to be fair to them, you know, I mean, um, I've got a fantastic colleague here who works here, David Owen Norris, who regularly performs his own music. And he's, I mean, he's, you know, international level pianist I often very scared to be around him because he's so good <laughs> and he writes beautifully as well um, so so yeah it's 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 an interesting thing Steve Reich is another topical example of somebody who has his own his own band I was about to say I'm not sure if you can call it that but uh, yeah so yeah you, you've got a number of kind of you've got this example of, of this uh, you know the musician as composer musician as performer in jazz which means you can you can really find the, the sound world you're working in yeah I was wondering, I'm glad you mentioned Jacob Collier. Yeah. Um, and the fact that his presentation is a bit uh, innovative. Yeah. I was wondering if you could say why that is, if you could point us to a specific uh, okay. way he does things that sure. captivate so many people. I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to prefix this by saying Jacob is utterly unbelievable. He's ridiculous as a musician. I'm, I'm in awe of what he can do especially I know this has been said over and over again but especially at the age he's at he's what is he now 22 23 he's he's young About right that, yeah I mean, it's ridiculous what he's achieved when he was 16 17 he was writing stuff that I would have been proud of <laughs> arranging stuff I, you know it's just like really you can do that at that age I know so I often feel that Jacob's judged unfairly on him wearing funny hats and different socks right um and uh, the fact that he's got a hold of YouTube before anyone else has got a hold of YouTube. If someone had brought me his version of Don't You Worry About a Thing or The Carpenter's Tune he did or he did Stevie Wonder Tune as well, did those arrangements and played them to me and not shown me him with goofy haircuts and stuff like that, I still would have been like, that's ridiculous. What is this? What am I listening to? Find, try and find out more, right? Who is this person? Why are they doing this? And then being gobsmacked when someone says, it's this guy with the funny hats and, uh, you know, his panoramic view inside his tiny room. So it, it's, I think I think we have to really respect the the artistry because there is an artistry to actually achieving that in, in any any respect. Um, do I think he's clever at uh, gaming the internet? Absolutely, and that's another piece of artistry because you know what, the best people are. I mean. You have to have you have to have a, a shtick, right? You have to have a thing, and his thing is the ability to put eight of him on a YouTube thing, and sometimes sixteen, and sometimes more than that, playing along. Um, there's the the problem Jacob now has is that he set himself such a high bar at the age of seventeen, eighteen. People people think that it's always going to go up, rather than thinking what what is he saying. So uh, I I find I do I feel for Jacob a lot because I do hear from. Other musicians, mainly kind of old grumpy men like me. Um, oh, you know, I can do all that. Yeah, of course you can. You're 40, you're, you're 30. You know, you, you don't, 
20 years older than him. Of course you can do that. Could you do that at 17? And would you have been able to edit a video like that? No, is the answer. So why, why is it so unique? I think it's the execution, is the answer. I think he's, he's, he's obviously a perfectionist, even though he pretends he's not. He pretends he's like a really kind of chilled dude. <laughs> Anyone who can put out stuff like that is, is amazing, right? And it's such detail in what he does, such detail. Um, I saw him discuss one of his original tunes the other day. Um, I say I saw him discuss, like everybody, I was on YouTube over lockdown watching anything that came up, and that was one of the things. Right? And it was one of his tunes, um, uh, All I Need, I think it's All I Need. Yeah, yeah, that one. And he was saying how, because the chorus modulates, right? It changes key. But it doesn't just change key, it changes key by quarter tone. So each of these separate choruses goes up another quarter tone every time he gets there. And I was like, that's ridiculous. Why would you do that? And um, so I just, I thought that was a gimmick. That was where I was like a little bit lost. Like, why, you know, if all you're doing is moving up. And And then I listened to a live version he did where it was just him and a piano, which obviously he couldn't take up a quarter tone without several kind of tools, right? Every chorus and quite a bit of gap. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And it was really markedly different between the recording, like lifted every time because of that quarter tone thing. It really worked. It wasn't just a gimmick. It really worked. It really did. And the piano thing, which sounded great because he's a great pianist as well. I, you know, there's reasons to hate this guy. I'm just realizing <laughs> why he's just amazing at everything, right? Um, so, but that sounded, in comparison, there was like a, it was a little bit, the energy was felt different on the, on the live version because he couldn't go up the quarter tone. And I was just like, okay, so that's a real reason. That's such small details. Imagine writing a track and going, do you know what's missing? Quarter tone higher in the chorus. <laughs> who says that? <laughs> no, Jacob Collier, right? That's who says that. Jacob Collier says that. And that's why he's that guy. Yeah. Oh, man. Would it be, would it be a stretch to say that he's revolutionizing the scene? There's no going back now? Or? <clears throat> I don't think it's just him. Uh, I think, and again, I think this is, so we, we're talking, it's really, this is a really cool question for jazz at the moment. Jazz has become, weirdly in my lifetime, kind of cool with young people again, you know? Which is really interesting, because I've, I kind of got the tail end of that when I was first growing up in the 80s, when there was like a kind of a little bit of a jazz thing. It was yuppie jazz, basically. I can't call it that. Sorry, it's awful. But you know, kind of, kind of bars in the cities with people yep. playing um, Sade and drinking Manhattan's and you know, lots of reverb. And then jazz went kind of off the radar and just went back to what it was. Um, I, you know, there's parallels in classical music. Obviously, Yo-Yo Ma is a very good example. You know, uh, and um, obvious, obvious parallels across all sorts of musics. You know, but um, yeah, there seems to be a ground, so a grassroots ref- revolution going on at the moment within within young people in jazz, which is very different to what it was before. So before it was like there were some wonderful young players who were, who were getting a lot of exposure, but it was the record companies, I think, I mean, I might be wrong here, but it seemed to me to be very kind of top-down, well-packaged, given to the right people. Here you have a lot of people because of the internet, because of the streaming revolution, because of YouTube, being able to be able to go straight to their market, effectively, their market are their mates, and saying, yo, I've made this great tune, do you want to check it out? And instead of their mates going, it's jazz, they've gone, that's a great tune, and they play it to someone else. And so you've got these, these really interesting artists who come out of this kind of ecosystem, the jazz ecosystem, who some of whom people don't even realize were kind of jazz in the first place, like Georgia Smith. Uh, she's like definitely from that neck of the woods and all her band members are all, I think they went to Trinity School of Music so and played jazz there, right? And there's loads of kind of crossover everywhere. I mean, one of the bands I'm really interested in at the moment is Black Midi, uh, which are like a, I don't know if you've heard them, but they're kind of crossover alt-rock thing. They're musicians. They've got like a really interesting new album out with loads of ja- amazing jazz musicians in it. Um, Sons of Kemet is another one who you might have heard of. So there's lots of kind of really, really kind of crossover stuff that's pushing through into what we'd normally consider the, the kind of pop territory. Um, 
the Comet is Coming is another one in this country. There's loads I could go through them. And then the big guy who kind of took over the world for a bit was Kamazi Washington. Kamazi, the reason why people know him was off the back of Kendrick Lamar's all the Flying Lotus guys. And um, so there's a real kind of, it feels more authentic this time around. I do know that a lot of the jazz is like this kind of, I, you know, there's some of them are like, well, man, they can't play changes. And I'm not going to get into that argument because I'll leave, I'll leave you with fewer listeners than you ever had on this. But I, my, my view is always if, if you need to talk to the musicians making the music before you judge them on what you think they're making the music of. Mm. And uh, it's like that conversation we just had about Yuja Wang and people like that. I think you have to be really careful about saying, well, they can't play the changes. Because if you rock up and talk to some of these guys, like, yeah, we can't play the changes, but we made our interpretation of what we think the changes are. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, that's become subjective, blah, blah, blah. Um, but yeah, I do think it's a really interesting scene. Um, I think I think that's, uh, I'm going to sound really old, but I think that's what the internet's given us, right? I'm not sure where it goes next. I don't know. I know it's not that I, I think it's a good thing or a bad thing. I just don't understand it particularly because it seems to be in such flux and there's so many different yeah. things happening all at once. Um, there must only, I, I think in my head, there must be a ceiling at which these things kind of can't go any further, but maybe yep. they can. Yeah, I, I don't I, know. I think um, to define your, I think to define an epoch, you have to wait for it to be over before you can right. define it. Right. Yeah, so we we don't know where right. this is going. Um, but it's really interesting because the same thing kind of is happening in classical music as well. There's, yes. You, know, you got yes. your Anna Merediths and people like that who are really cool, you know, and um Yeah. It's interesting. Which which brings me to a sort of a semi or not semi actually, a quite a philosophical question <laughs> which leads on to the yeah. epoch epoch statement you made, um or we made. Um so there's this I came across this social political theory by Marx and it was developed by Thomas More in mm. the late, uh, sorry, maybe early, late 19th and maybe early 20th. And then it was further developed by Francis Fukuyama and it, it was this theory of um, the end of history. Okay. So not the end of existence of humans, but the end of history. So right. what it means is human existence, there'll be a time in human existence where there'll be a form of government, in this case, liberal democracy, which is the highest, most desired form of democracy, uh, of, uh, of government. And that's not to say there won't be any alternatives to liberal democracy, but liberal democracy would, the, would be the most coveted, would be the most desired form of government. And where the end of history comes is that once we achieve this everywhere, or yeah, everywhere maybe, or in particular countries, there's no more need, there's no need to fight anymore there's no need to progress um and i figured what if we applied this to music would there be a way of writing that's so effective to communicate what you have in your mind to music that there won't be any need for other forms of expression anymore we'll reach a peak <laughs> in musical expression and we can experiment all we like with different forms, but that form won't be the most efficient or it won't be the most effective. So we, there, there would be alternatives. People can, by all means, go and do them, but it won't be the peak. Mm. And I realized this with, I don't know if you kept up with Bruno Mars and his new release with Anderson mm-hmm. There, he He's gone back to the 80s style of, of dressing and um, it, dancing. It's Marvin Gaye. He's made a record yeah, like Marvin Gaye. Exactly, made, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And even the music and the harmonies were, were very, very um, sort of harking back to that. Yeah. And you see all the comments that people make on YouTube. Um, oh, I love the nostalgic feel. Yeah. I love that music is going back to yeah. this place. And you see thousands of thousands of these comments of people wanting music to go back to this peak. And I think it is happening already, don't you think? It's, we, we, I, we've I, reached I it. think it's really, I mean, I'm playing devil's advocate here. There's a chap called Arnold Schoenberg, who I'm sure I'm aware of with the third Viennese school who said the same thing and he just got on with it hmm. <laughs> so he, he was like okay music's, music's finished I'm going to introduce new music I'm going to yeah. start again so this is not um, unheard of and uh, there are others who are much I mean 
even 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 greater. I mean, the whole Milton Babbitt and uh, Derno and guys like that in the sixties. There's a real there was a real kind of backlash against what we're talking about, which is effectively re- repeating yourself, you know. Um, however, I mean, this is, I, I'm, I'm going to sound, I sound so much like a teacher in this, in this, uh, <laughs> uh, this chat rather than just like a musician, if there's a difference. Uh, um, I, one of the things I say to the students here is if anyone can name me a genre that isn't influenced by another genre, I'd be happy to hear and it's such a difficult I just don't know I, this everything has its roots in something else and so therefore when Bruno Mars by the way deliberately as we all know I mean that's, I think it's an unfair analogy because the Bruno Mars and um, Anderson Pack thing is uh, there's no absolutely no doubt that's exactly what they're aiming for right. they've opened up uh, the Marvin Gaye record and gone yeah we'll do that but we'll make it into a different song. Right. Okay? Right. In the same way that, that that's what he did with Uptown Funk, and that's what he did with... Um, uh, basically, Bruno Mars is what the best pastiche machine in the world ever, <laughs> just about. Um, you know, he sounds like Michael Jackson some days, other days he sounds like Stevie Wonder, other days he... So I've got no... You know, that's what he does. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think... I, it depends what kind of musician you are is, is the answer to that. Some people just like doing that. Fair enough. And if you're good at it, great. Some people like to, in commas, push boundaries. But their boundaries are always pushed by what their influence are in the first place, even if it's a reaction to that influence. Hmm. So, you know, you can argue that Schoenberg was only Schoenberg because of Mahler. Right. <laughs> you know, he's, he's sick of Mahler, right? He's sick of Mahler doing all these massive stuff. You know, sick of Strauss and people. He's like, well, the only reason that he can actually do that is because they've done that for him. They've done the groundwork, and he has to then... Uh, Richard Strauss is not a million ways away from what Schoenberg was doing, right? Mm. And um, I think Schoenberg is is genius in the sense that that the system, the matrix he put in place is uh, his whole ideas. But then there's others. I mean, like Lutislawski, Zanarkis, people with with different systems. Um, Listen to me. It's almost like I learned something in those three years of the degree I didn't mean to do. So (laughs) (laughs) thank you, University of Sussex. Um, The... um, but I think, you know, it's similar with jazz. I mean, like the whole the whole Ornette Coleman free jazz thing. When you actually listen to Ornette Coleman, he plays the blues. It's free jazz, inverted commas. But, man, he, some of those tunes are great. They're so bluesy. It's just full of the blues. And um, it's there's always a thing harking back. So I do think it's – I like your idea. I, I, I love the idea of Marx um, leading to liberal democracy as well. That's a – I'm sure Marx would be chuckling about that. I'm not sure he, that's what he had yeah, in mind. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or maybe it wasn't, maybe it was communism. But it's the Marx, idea of utopia, yeah. right? It's this, this yes. idea, uh, yeah, yeah, which is, uh, I mean, it's, it's flawed in its essence anyway. Sorry, everyone who thinks things are going to get better always. <laughs> um, they are, honestly. Um, they will right now, hopefully. <laughs> Otherwise, we're all going to cry. But um, coming out at the end of the pandemic. Um, anyway. I'm uh, getting political here. I, I think there's a there's an argument to be made for when you write music to to not have the weight of the past hanging over you. I, I think and delivering it as well. You, the the phrase about standing on the shoulders of giants rather than you know being weighed down by the weight of the world. You know, there's kind of all these wonderful metaphors. Um, I don't begrudge anyone for making music that sounds like something else. I do when they pretend it's theirs and they don't, you know. I mean, if, if Bruno Mars and Anderson Pack are not telling people that they, you know, we came up with this, no, you didn't. You listen to Marvin Gaye, you listen to Sly and the Family Stone, and they will say that. They'll say they're the biggest influences. And, and if you say that to someone, I mean, I'm not in touch with Anderson Pack right now, but <laughs> if, you say to, if you say to him, you know, this is, uh, you sound like, that record sounds like Marvin Gaye, he would say thank you. That's what he would say. Right. Because in the same way that if if someone came up to a gig and said to me, you know what, in that second tune you sounded like, I don't know, a bit like Paul Desmond or Charlie Parker, I'd be like, my God, can I buy you a drink? <laughs> right. So it's, it's, it's the only thing I've ever wanted anyone. I don't want people to say you sound like you. If you're comparing me to the best people ever in the history of music, that's brilliant for me, right? Yeah. Um, the, the other side of that is our listeners... Uh, easily fooled. Um, you may think so. I couldn't possibly comment. 
that's the only answer I have for that. <laughs> you know, we, we we listen to and we we discuss music on a very different level to some others, and and rightly so in many ways. But the other side of this is the there can be a certain a certain level of arrogance to a certain extent with 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 way in which musicians discuss music, forgetting that for others symbolically it means something. So to someone who might have just heard that record you were talking about, the Anderson Pack, um I was about to say Anderson Pack Marvin Gaye record, the Anderson Pack Bruno Mars record, <laughs> um, they might have heard it for the first time and it resonated with them because of the situation they were in. And that's what that meant to them. And they wouldn't have listened ever to Marvin Gaye. I find uh I, I mean one of the things that I've been enjoying massively at the moment is uh it's the fact that all these kind of old football songs are being brought up because of the Euros. And many of them have absolutely no relevance at all to the people singing them. So they, they resonate because of a different reason to the reason why they resonate with some people who were there at the time. You know, there's mm. a, the different meanings of things. Mm. Um, it's very interesting. And, and whereas, you know, us musos would be like, well, the reason this works is because it's at this speed and it's got that kind of thumpiness. And, you know, um, thumpiness is a musical technical term, as we both know, right? Um, whereas other people would be like, well, I, I heard this when I first saw this or this. And, and it's uh, really interesting how memories trigger certain things mm. in music. But, yeah. It's all relative, isn't it? Absolutely, man. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, again, it's something that I try not to forget. I mean, uh, I do quite a lot, especially when I'm hammering other musicians about it. wait you need to play like this you need to do that you know i try to try to remember not to i can't believe you know yeah uh, sorry no no it's uh i'd just like to wrap up the episode because i know we've been talking for quite a while i wish right. we could talk all day You're fine man yeah. um what what would you say to a jazz musician who ha- wants to carry on with jazz but has lost energy or motivation to do so what would you say to sort of inspire them and encourage them to carry on um i find that very sad that statement i think it's it's interesting you should talk about this especially within the context of where we are with Mm. the pandemic and stuff Mm -hmm. i think uh um i'm very lucky i've got great friends i i do music because i like it um i don't feel necessarily that it's I don't feel like I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to sound very strange. I've never been particularly ambitious. Um, so I don't feel like people should listen to my music ever. I just make music because it's enjoyable. Um, so I've never really had that thing that I lose motivation because of that. Um, however, and this is where I've had to really understand this better. I've got lots of friends who do have real insecurities about making music and the pandemic especially hasn't helped them. And jazz musicians in particular, because jazz is such a marginal music. Actually, a lot of musics have been marginalized uh, because of the way in which the the music world has stopped, you know? So it's very difficult to actually go and do something like this. So this is not a very topical question, you know? Um, I mean, there's two answers. The first one, I think, is what I would do, but it's not necessarily the correct one. The first thing I would do is I'd probably probably take them to a gig and say, do you remember when you used to love this? And do you remember, you know, it's very difficult to take people to gigs at the moment, but, you know, we go and, you go and work out the reason why you're doing it because there's always a reason why. And if the reason that they're upset and demotivated about doing this is because they feel like they're not achieving enough, that's the wrong reason. Because, because uh, you, this is you know, if you want to go deeply philosophical, it's not up to you whether or not you're going to achieve. It's up to the music, and you leave the music behind. And in the same, I completely agree about epoch, but I also truly believe that if if you are worried about your own legacy, then you're totally in trouble as any kind of human being. <laughs> you know? There was a chap in charge of America for fortunately not that many years that's all he was worried about was his legacy and he was possibly the worst president ever <laughs> uh, so so um uh for all sorts of reasons but not least because if you start worrying about what people you know i mean we have a narcissist as a prime minister at the moment and uh, if you worry about yourself rather than what you're actually doing then you're on the wrong track immediately right so that's that's the answer would be like i'm, I'm quite sure most people I always ask, it always horrifies me to find out if music students, and sorry to any music students who I've ever taught or will teach, don't want to do anything with music. 
why would you choose music to study if you don't <laughs> it's the same if I'm on a gig and I'm sat next to someone like I'll be playing and, and then they'll be like yeah I'm only here for the money why are you here then <laughs> you know you can get more money like doing something else right you get more money at McDonald's than most of my gigs right so, so <laughs> you know um you do it because you really, you truly love the thing, right? So you need to discover the love and why you love it. So that would mean, I always think, like, listening to stuff, the way in for me. And you go back to what you, I, mem- I remember when I was first starting out, and you've probably got, you said about the Chinese music you were listening to, but um, I have I have records that I remember vividly listening to over and over again. And I've started rediscovering them. And you listen to them differently because you're older, you're better trained and all that, but they still move you and you smile and enjoy it. And so that's the first thing. The second answer which I think we should, we should also be aware of, is that sometimes people do want to stop doing it. And that ain't a bad thing. There's other things in the world, you know? I mean, if I could be a professional do-a-nothinger with a glass of wine, maybe in a farmhouse in Italy looking over the beach and Spain, nice warm place, doing nothing... <laughs> I might seriously consider it. <laughs> you know, that's a, that's obviously a profession, that. Um, but um, you know, some people are in, inspired by other things. So I I don't feel like. Again, I don't feel like you have to have to redo things. Sometimes you need to let things go, and you finally come back to you. So, uh, so yeah, it's interesting because I I used to do loads and loads of record producing, or certainly writing and producing, and I didn't do it for a while just because I kind of a bit fell out of love with it. Didn't really. I found it. I found it a bit overwhelming for a bit, so I just stopped doing it. And I've just started doing it a lot more again. And I've realised how much I missed it. But there was a time when I didn't miss it at all. So it's not a very helpful answer. Uh, if if you're not enjoying your music, we'll go and watch a gig. But it'll be, you, you'll get to choose the gig, by the way. We'll go and watch it together. And uh, you choose the gig. Um, and if you can't choose a gig, I'll choose a gig for you. And it will involve... Um, I don't know what it will involve, but certainly there'll be a... There'll be a fair amount of whiskey drunk and Netflix after the gig. <laughs> <laughs> to bring it all back full circle. Yeah. How about that? It's almost, yeah. Well, Dan, thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. Really lovely. Thanks for having me, Anthony. And, you know, uh, good luck with the rest of this podcast. So fantastic. Thank you very much. You're welcome. <laughs>